0: By definition, any of the brains to be called a brain need to be able to learn. So when you do heart transplants, it's not just a mechanical pump. You're transplanting a brain, a center of wisdom. And what they found and researched over and over in this whole books just on this is that the receiver of the donor heart then takes on some of the characteristics of the donor.
1: How many times were you in a situation where the rational thing to do went against what you actually felt in your heart? All because we are unable to actually align these important decision drivers. But this changes with this episode, the second series of my subconscious pills where we learn how to interpret what the mind, the heart, and the gut are telling us. Thanks for being here. And remember, you can support the growth of this podcast by rating five stars. Are you ready to crack the subconscious code? Let's start. Today, we have a very special guest joining us directly on air from Auckland, New Zealand. Well, here in Berlin is 9 p.m. Dr. Susan Hanwood is a coach, psychology researcher, and the co-founder of the coaching tool Multiple Brain Preference Questionnaire, which is part of Mbraining, the multiple brain integration techniques. m is a very interesting, fairly new technique to align with our so-called three brains, the head, the heart, and the gut. And the story of how I met Susan is worth sharing because I was, as you may know, researching intuition for my dissertation, and one of the chapters of the main handbooks entailed M braining So I contacted the email address cited in the author's page without thinking that much would come out of it, and here we are sitting in front of each other. So glad to welcome you on the podcast, Susan. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you, and uh, yeah, lovely to connect. with
1: Yes. <laughs> First of all, before explaining what the tool actually does, how did it start for you? How did you start developing into this new level of um, neurocoaching, you might say?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It goes back quite a long time, probably 2012, 2013. I was in a very, very toxic work environment. And with all my coaching skills, I couldn't influence it at all, which was a real challenge to me. It was like, I need to sort this out. And I heard about this new field of m coming out. So I went on a four-day course and met both of the founders of the field, was very impressed with their research behind it, with who they were as people, their values, everything it stood for. And I got so much out of the course for myself, I felt like I hadn't really... Sat and learned to be a coach. I did pass the course, but I went and did the course again because there was so much that I didn't feel I'd fully taken on board because I was getting a new insight into myself. So, yeah, I did the the course twice, and the second time, really got to know Grant Susalu, who is the main kind of name behind Embraining. He's the brains behind it. And from there, I got more and more involved. I went over to Australia and trained as a trainer. Um, Shortly after that, he invited me to step up as a master trainer and step alongside him to lead the field. Mm -hmm. And that was how our work started, out of which came the Multiple Brain Preference Questionnaire that took quite a long time, actually, to do the research. And we finally got it published in Sage Open to show that it was valid and reliable as a tool. Fortunately, Grant passed in 2019 and gifted the tool to me. And we're developing that tool a little bit further.
1: Let's work with what we have now. So the three brains.
0: Why three brains? Well, it's not m calling them three brains. The science literature says there are a set of criteria that need to be met in order to call a neural network a brain. So what Grant did was start to look at all the research behind that and say, oh, this is very interesting because they were all in silos. But in one person, you've got all three. So how do we bring them together? and learn to communicate with them, learn to align them. And hence the field of embraining came.
1: Yeah, seeing that the studies that have been done to a yep. larger degree by the HeartMath Institute about how the heart can gain the stimuli way before brain does and react to it.
0: And yeah. the gut is even faster. So the gut even responds before the heart.
1: Tell me yeah, a bit actually... about that. We can name a, a scenario to understand it better.
0: So have you ever done anything crazy like a bungee jump or a skydive? Imagine you have come to New Zealand, you're on the original bungee bridge, straps around your ankle, and you are stood on quite a small wooden frame, wriggling forwards to jump into a gorge. Where do you feel that in your body?
1: I guess you will feel a void in your stomach.
0: Right. So your gut comes first because it's all about safety, self-preservation. It has to be fast because it could be a life or death decision that it's making. Fear is also held in the gut, as is courage.
1: The two go together. But how do they communicate with each other?
0: Well, there's several ways they communicate. The one that is probably most well-known is through the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve. And we used to think it was sending information down from the brain to the body but what we now know is at least 80% of that communication is upwards and so the gut sends information up via the heart to the head and through the vagus nerve but of course it's more complicated than that because we have chemical messages endocrine messages (laughs) electromagnetic messages
1: do they communicate all the way around or is it more okay the gut communicates to the heart the heart communicates to the brain and the brain communicates to the heart back
0: Bidirectional system for sure. So, if you look at the stress and anxiety literature, it's all talking about the HPA axis, which starts in the head and comes down, but it doesn't discuss the direct sympathetic trigger right into the adrenal gland. So, there is also a body response at the same time that's happening. Now, what we know because so much information is coming upwards, if I'm stressed, and all this information is coming up really fast because it's a security issue, if I try to use my head to calm it, that -hmm. message is not going to get through. We've got to go where the message is coming from and work with the body, which is why embodied coaching is taking on such a large prominence at the moment. So the somatic therapies, embodied coaching, and why embraining is so impactful because we will talk to the gut and settle the gut at gut level, not try to come down to the gut from the head. Could we
1: give an example of that? How do you talk to the gut? How do we talk to the heart?
0: Well, the heart's probably slightly easier for most people, although for some people they they do block the heart communication. If there's been big trauma or big hurt or pain, they might decide to shut that down because it's too painful and too difficult. But for most people, if you just took your right hand and placed it over your heart so you can feel your heartbeat in the palm of your hand, you have already established a connection, a communication physically. And that makes it infinitely easier then to take your attention to your heart space and talk from the inside or listen, really, from the inside. You're listening rather than talking. And your heart will have a different voice. It's not going to talk to you in long academic sentences, but it might give you a word or a simple sentence. It might give you an image or a metaphor or a sensation that then will go to the head for interpretation, which is why it's important they're connected. So probably the easiest way to feel in for that for yourself is if you bring to mind initially someone who you adore, that you're grateful for, you appreciate, you love. Have you got someone in mind, yes of course and if you feel and I can see you're feeling it because your beautiful face is lit up and you're smiling right you're now feeling that love where are you feeling it
1: yeah my upper body
0: it's not the limbic system is it so it's interesting that we make all these assumptions about where emotions are held where they're first experienced and yeah heart math and embraining would say maybe we haven't got the full story and actually The emotion is first felt in the heart space and then information is sent up through the insula into the amygdala for processing. But because we've not scanned this bit, we assume the only bit we're seeing is up in the head.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's to my understanding, also the principle of positive psychology and how we can influence our own emotions through this heart and brain connection. Uh, But I think Mm -hmm. our understanding of gut as a brain is newer or less tangible in some way
0: yeah the gut brain it actually was known about before but then it was kind of pushed aside mm-hmm. and then probably the 80s early 90s michael gershon revisited that gut brain and really started to bring it back into more public awareness now in the that last 10 20 years it's almost like you can't not hear about it now everybody's talking about it and they're talking about it in two different ways so there is the Enteric nervous system, and there is the microbiome, both of which are incredibly important but different. And so, when you hear about the gut brain, it, it needs a little bit of digging. What are they talking about? Are they talking about the gut microbiome, or are they talking about the enteric nervous system? And in Embraining, if you read the original Embraining book, which was in 2012, and we know knowledge is extending. So for all of my courses, I've updated them all to be the latest research. But in the original book, we really only talked about the enteric nervous system.
1: If we take the down, it's easy for everyone to understand what is an emotion, a feeling, and place it in the heart. It's easy to understand what is a thought, a rational thought, and place it in the head. But what about intuition? Attribute of intuition was effective feature, which is now more related to to the head, one will say, right? So where do we place values and and emotions in the context of intuition?
0: Okay, big question, huge question. With the best knowledge we have at the moment is how I answer. Who knows what else might come to light further down the line. But right now, the heart has three core or prime functions, one of which is feelings, one of which is values. So we hold values at heart level as well. And the other is connection with others, that relational affect. The gut is all about safety, self preservation, we've already talked about. It's also a core sense of identity. So, not ego identity, which is in head based, who the world says I should be, who I think I might be or should be. Core identity is in the gut. And taking action or not taking action is also in the gut. So, for us, intuition can be in any of those brains and in all of them so we go back a step and we go so what's intuition as opposed to instinct say or as opposed to insight and I think some people use the terms interchangeably and we don't believe they are so insight is that for us the moment in the shower when you suddenly go oh I've got that answer and I wasn't even thinking about it the ha ha moment so that's insight and it can happen, it, you know, the whole world of mindfulness and uh, Mark Walkman's work about mindful yawning to actually instigate those moments of absolute stillness where suddenly creativity comes in. Okay, so there's lots of research behind that. Instinct is often a gut level response and it's often safety related. So it's almost what you were talking about earlier, that sometimes you get that inner message from the heart or gut before the brain's even switched on. So if I go to cross a road and I haven't looked properly because I'm distracted by my mobile phone or by my child or whatever, and a bus or a car comes towards me, my body will just react. I don't think about it. I don't think I should jump back now. My body will just react. That's instinct. And sometimes we take action instinctively. We react to something instinctively. And we might get it wrong. We might actually misinterpret something at gut level because it triggers something from before or an old trauma and suddenly we're in a fight with somebody, arguing with them, and they go, hang on, that's not what I meant, not what I said. Intuition is a much deeper, more complicated, integrated entity that at its best relies on all three brains. So it will use our head, brain, knowledge, understanding, analysis, logic, research, all of that is part of it, as is my doing, my experiential, my years of expert practice from the gut, and my values that are contextualizing and driving all that from the heart and how I relate to others so intuition can start at any one of the brains but before I act on intuition I kind of want to check in that I've checked all three brains
1: how do you check you mentioned before the the ego or, or the trauma right so it could be that these brains are in conflict for example, okay, should I stay with this guy or not? The mind says, oh no, he's unhealthy for you. The, the heart says, oh, but you're so in love.
0: Well, now that you know that the gut is about identity and about safety and security and taking action, what might the gut say? The gut might say, you need to leave him or you need to stay. Or the gut might say, oh, I don't know who I'd be if I wasn't in relationship with him. Or... The gut might just say look something doesn't feel right it doesn't feel safe and you might not even be able to explain why
1: right but we also talked about instinctive reaction that could be caused by some trauma from before so it doesn't necessarily be the right
0: no so with intuition it's about feeling into all three brains and checking out so our head as well as doing logic analysis what it knows what it's aware of also does story making and meaning making right so the head hates gaps and if there's a gap in knowledge it will fill it and it will fill it with a story that might not be true so often and Byron Katie does this beautifully in her little system called the works um I very rarely get beyond the first two questions Um, if I'm honest there's four questions but the first two are is it true so whatever fact you're thinking of is it true and of course if you're you've got confirmation bias running the temptation is to go well of course it's true I know it's true so then the next question is well how do you know it's true So, it uses the skill of the head brain to really unpack that, which would help you to check for any instincts that might be driven by old patterns. Um, At gut level, again, you might get an instant like that instinct that something's not safe. I have a 20 year old son who's an absolute joker, (laughs) and he does things like he'll hide behind a a uh, wall and jump out at me as I walk down the corridor of the house. Right? My gut immediately goes, ah, risk. But I look at his face, know it's him, see him smiling and laughing, and my whole body can relax. But there's a check in that I can do with my gut. Is there actually a risk? Is there actually a threat? Mm-hmm. So for me, intuition is just momentarily a little bit slower than instinct. And we don't necessarily have to act on it immediately so we can spend the time to reflect on, feel into, check out whether that intuition is accurate or correct. The research is phenomenally in support of intuition being accurate. So where do we place uh, cognitive bias then? in the head cognitive by default is in the head and that's where byron katie's work starts to come into play as you question what you think you know because you might not know or you might be um you know i said earlier about how fast the knowledge is changing on the planet i read recently it's doubling every 12 hours So even what I knew yesterday that I might have checked out yesterday might still be worth checking because there might have been some research overnight that changes everything. So I'm always open to have what I think I know be challenged, but I'll check out any opposing view. I think one of the problems with cognitive bias is we just go with what we think we know. We don't deliberately go and look for opposite information.
1: But looking at Kahneman's work, he defines these two systems, right? So system one, which is the intuitive system, the processing system, um, and system two, which is more our rational analysis. Generally, he's against relying on system one, except for expertise. But the one thing he mentions that really stands out about cognitive biases is that, well, it affects more system one first of all, because often we cannot verbalize, we will make certain judgments. But he also mentions that System 1 does not have the ability to update new information. So change the the pattern of information into a new one. So what do you think about that?
0: I know, talk about putting me on a, a pole and throwing me into the fire. I have to be honest, it's not my experience. My experience is, and by definition, any of the brains to be called a brain need to be able to learn. And so we know way more now about neuroplasticity than we ever did. Um, Even neurogenesis, although that's still in the early days of really understanding where neurogenesis happens in the body. And there's clearly some areas that we've shown it already, like the hippocampus and other areas where we've not shown it as much. I, we, In the research we did, we don't agree with that. And I guess that's why Marta invited us to write in the book, because we definitely have evidence to suggest that there are at least three separate entities, not system one and two, and that a lot of the research that holds that body intuition treats it as one entity.
1: Intuition will be kind of the, the meta system above all of it, the integration of all the three.
0: I think intuition is a full integrated system, but that's not what a lot of the literature is talking about at the moment. Well, you know, going there, if you look at, again, the math work and the original Embraining book, there's some beautiful examples in there of how the heart, for example, has knowledge so when you do heart transplants, it's not just a mechanical pump. You're transplanting a brain, a center of wisdom. And what they found and researched over and over in this whole books just on this is that the receiver of the donor heart then takes on some of the characteristics of the donor. Things like personality changes, things like taste for certain food changes what they like to do changes. The most amazing, extreme example that I have come across is a young girl that had a heart transplant that got so much information from the donor organ that they convicted the killer of the donor. Right, so it's not just a pump. It's not just a mechanical pump you're transferring. And there's examples in the book, too, of gut where there was an army an army doctor who was in charge of a ward of um, paralyzed soldiers basically who had built up a routine had built up a, a mechanism for keeping them healthy for keeping their bowels moving and basically every morning at a certain time the patients had an enema in order to evacuate the bowels because they were paralyzed they couldn't do it right that was the story that they had been told and they believed and it worked that doctor had to take leave a new doctor came in and went well why are we doing this every day this is unnecessary the bowel can relearn how to evacuate in a different way and he removed the enemas the guys managed to evacuate their bowels without the enema so the bowels had learnt a new way of being responding to food going through it even though the original nerve had been damaged to the extent that it was no longer conducting.
1: Super interesting. I would like to dive a bit into the heart transplant story. Will you say the same shift happens when someone has a heart attack? Then there is, uh, for this reason, because the heart learns a shift in personality.
0: So I used to be an academic and I used to um, teach like research skills and about getting a research profile together for staff. And someone rang me from another department and said, hey, look, I couldn't make the date. I had some health issues going on. And is there any way I can get the materials because I've got to be signed off to say I've done it? I said, hey, no problem. We'll just go out for coffee. Like, we'll go for coffee and I'll go through it with you. So we went out for coffee and he was telling me why he wasn't there. And he'd had a heart surgery because of a heart attack. The story he was telling me, I was just going, I know we're here to talk about research. But can we have this conversation again? And can I record this? Because this is so foundational to what we do in N-Braining? So that interview is on my website, if you're interested. Um, this guy, he had a professional opera, singing background. He'd been a, a principal of a school, a head teacher. And he was now a lecturer in the same uh, academic institution that I was in and he had had this heart attack he'd had surgery have I don't know stents or whatever put in and they closed him up but he said somebody touched my heart interesting language and Kiwi men don't show emotions particularly they're they're quite she'll be right she'll be right we'll be right you know get a nail and fix it so on the way home his wife is driving him home and he suddenly gripped the dashboard and said to her, Stop the car, stop the car. Now, this poor woman, she's just picked up her husband from having open heart surgery. I'd be worried, like, What is going on? Do I need to turn around, and get him back to hospital? <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't? I'd have hit him afterwards, I have to say. No, I wouldn't, obviously. But um, so they stopped the car and she said, What's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, look at that beautiful bird on the fence and he cried at the beauty of a bird on a fence and that was when he said he realized something had touched his heart and it had opened up access to emotions that he had closed down for years and one of the emotions that he or one of the desires values was about writing and he'd been told by his family writing is not a career choice you can't waste your time doing that go and do a proper profession kind of thing. Anyway, what transpired was after that, he was a prolific writer. And he actually wrote us a book, a crime book, where the chief detective used his multiple brains to solve the crime. So he didn't even have a heart plan he didn't even go on bypass. But because somebody touched his heart, his belief is, it totally changed his heart's reaction to the world.
1: Hmm. That's uh, very beautiful, of course. Um, (laughs) I know a a little bit from, from a personal family background, a little bit of a different story that's oftentimes because of this fear of having realized we are after also vulnerable and can be, and oftentimes after a heart attack, stance installed, and one would think, okay, everything is fine, but it's not. Oftentimes, there are some uh, problems going on for years, sometimes even diverse uh, heart attacks following the first episode. And all of a sudden, I see this in, in my family. The personality changes, and the way we live life may change as well, but into the worse. Yes. Yeah.
0: There's a huge link to depression post heart attacks. There's actually a huge link pre-heart attack to emotion as well. So there's, uh, you're far more likely to have a heart attack if you're holding anger or resentment. Mm -hmm. So yeah, emotions can be impacted in any number of ways and there's a well-known risk of depression following heart attack and heart surgery.
1: Given your background, what do you think? Is the difference then where is the difference between okay we have a heart attack and uh, we finally after such a long time can be attuned with our heart or we have an heart attack and this uh, kind of prevents us from being attuned with so much more in our life
0: it's a great question and i i think it's a wider question because if i look at so i'm in auckland new zealand we've just gone through Two severe floods, cyclones, even an earthquake in Wellington that we felt up here. It's been really traumatic. Over a thousand houses have been destroyed completely. If you look at how people are responding to a tragedy, some people will move towards it to help, to get involved, to connect with people, to do what they can. And they will find something of value of learning within the devastation. For others, it will break them. So I think the question is the same, either end, whether it's post-heart attack or, you know, in life generally. And if I'm, I don't want to sound harsh because it's not easy, but at some level we make a choice. At some level, but we choose how to react to what happens to us stress isn't what happens to us stress is how we react to what happens to us now if we've never been taught to regulate our nervous systems if we've never been taught to be okay feeling the feelings that come up in a trauma or a tragedy one of the ways we deal with it is to just cut it out just not go there suppress it completely or even dissociate from the body completely and I think it's the same because if you've got a heart attack going on, that is a life threat, right? That's a that's a genuine life threat. And then how you respond to that, you might shut down all of the healing options. And it's not to judge or criticize people because I think we're not taught how to do it as human beings. Some of us are lucky enough that either through family or through faith or whatever find a way of doing it for me i've been learning about this for 20 25 years so i'm lucky that i have some insight into how to do it but even for me when i was in that toxic work environment i even though i was making a choice i couldn't influence the others we're always part of a system So it's not an easy I, I certainly wouldn't want anyone to hear me and go oh you just think it's think happy thoughts that's not what i'm saying at all But I think we can do the hard work in ourselves with the right support, with the right know-how and hugely impact. But I do know a lot of that. I mean, that's the basis of my work is I help people in stress, anxiety and little t trauma, teaching them how to regulate their nervous system so they can get through.
1: How do we identify the conditioned versus the the original yeah great question again you were mentioning the real self resides in the gut conditioned the ego is in the brain or in our head influenced by society's expectations and so on and i think it's no wonder that people who feel enlightened spiritually they have real difficulties living in our system
0: today's world yep and, and we haven't even talked about that spiritual entity around us. We haven't talked about soul and whether or not people believe there's a soul or an essence beyond the physical body. It is hugely complex, I think. I'm not going to sit here and claim I've got the answers. For me, it's, a, it's been a lifelong journey of ex- exploration and discovery. And how do I know if I'm running a pattern or it's something new? I think it is looking for that patterns. Where's this shown up before? might be in a different context or even a slightly different trigger but is this a pattern i'm familiar with in my body would be an indication that it's triggering something from earlier rather than just being something brand new but also i believe you can have new things new traumas that are brand new and if you've checked out and found the answer genuinely to be no it's not a from you know from before I think the risk is we can almost blame people judge people and go oh you're just reacting to old trauma you're hallucinating you're whatever the word is and actually do quite a lot of re-traumatization and not honor what they're feeling in that moment because whether it's a pattern or not it's still real for them in that moment
1: it's so powerful it's true and we always have to accept it first in order to also understand it and learn how to live with it so regulate it and integrate it into some uh, new yeah
0: and for many people it might go into inner child work or you know this is a recurring pattern i might be in conflict with somebody here but actually what's really bothering me is what happened 30 years ago Mm. that is being triggered that happens So for me, it's about finding expert people to go and have those conversations with, to have a safe space, to go and explore that at the right level for you. I have a coach. I also have a spiritual director where I will go and talk those spiritual issues for me because it's an important part of my life. Um, So it's finding the right people who can challenge because sometimes it takes a real challenge. But also hold that sacred space so you're safe to explore. I was uh, having yesterday
1: a conversation with a trauma therapist. And I think my main takeaways from that conversation was alone, the understanding that we need someone to elaborate what is going on with us. And alone, this step and insight is a step forward for healing. And, And in terms of feeling emotions. So if we think of a long term relationship where maybe two parties uh, have neglected to pay attention to each other for a very long time, and it's not easy for them to reconnect with these emotions, to elicit these emotions in themselves and between each other,
0: how will you approach that? Mm. So one of my favorite answers to any question is it depends. Like what's their journey been to get to that point? What was their starting point before it started to disrupt? Like, were they in a really good place before where they could communicate at that level or have they never done that fully? If people are very headbrained, which many, many are, to try and jump right in to feel a feeling, it's too big a leap. And so I'll often do a little bit of, let's look at how we treat the world differently. So I might get them to do love languages, for example. And then talk about how their whole perception of how they're loved or how they feel love or how they give love is just different. And that might help explore. I use a lovely little tool with most of my clients actually called the emotional culture deck, Mm -hmm. which is a beautiful way of exploring feeling in a safe way because it's a deck of cards. So how do you want to feel? How do you not want to feel? what would you have to do more of to feel more of this and more of to feel less of this? And when you do that with a couple, I've got a few couples at the moment I'm working with, they get real insight into realising something they wouldn't even have dreamed of doing could make such a difference. Or something that they're doing that is having a negative impact, they had no idea, it wasn't deliberate, it wasn't intentional. And so they get choices then about how they... Change and what I get them to do is come up with a joint list as a couple. What are your top five emotions you want to feel as a couple, and what can you do for each other and for yourself to feel more of that? So that's a lovely little tool that I will use to bring emotions out and talk about them, feel slightly safer than to go in and kind of feel them straight away when that's the issue that they're bringing.
1: Mm -hmm. will you say we can always locate ourselves into the the brain that suits our personality correctly or is that as well a uh, condition well
0: of course that's something i also do is i will give them the multiple brain preference questionnaire even it's in, in its original form and allocate for them which brain they are using as a preference and again if there's a mismatch so if you have I'm thinking of one couple I've got at the moment. Lovely, lovely couple. Both of them run their own business. They're incredibly intelligent. They've not been married that long. And they're feeling like there's a little bit of tension. He's absolutely a head brain. And again, typical man in terms of problem solver. So if there's a problem, let's sit down and work out what we need to do. And we'll just do it. She's much more of a heart, gut, brain preference. And for her, she's like going, I don't want you to solve my problem. I want you to feel what I'm feeling. I want you to recognize what I'm feeling. And he's like going, that's not important. Let's solve it. So there's this mismatch because of their brain preference as well. So to help them realize that, what do you need? And then for him, what does he need? Because he's equally as frustrated that she's not taking action to do something about it. She's going, well, I'm not taking action until you know what I'm talking about and you felt it. <laughs> so just helping them to unpack that, yeah, we've had some beautiful results with couples.
1: Yeah, it sounds so trivial somehow, but I think a couple oh. can maintain a loving relationship once they understood what the other person needs and just uh, be able to give it to him or her. A friend of mine who has been in a very long uh, relationship told me this after I broke up with my ex boyfriend, and I was like, okay, that's so easy, but you will have probably employed at the the right time helped a lot
0: so the intention of doing it initially when I started working with this couple there was a sense that she had made him come and he was there a bit reluctantly Mm. and the intention then was for him to placate her not truly to understand her So I had to get them both on the same intention that, come on, let's talk about what is it that you want as the outcome here? And they both beautifully sat and said, we love each other. We want to work this out. We want to get back to that, how we were initially when we first met and, you know, couldn't keep our hands off each other kind of thing. So working at that intention level before you do the work as well can be really helpful. And of course, we're all human. So this happens in workplaces as well. It might not be about a relationship of love with someone at work but the number of um conflicts at work i i get called in to help unpack it's kind of the same process which brain are you coming from and if you're communicating from this one and they're communicating from this one you might as well be speaking a foreign language
1: yeah i had a uh, very enlightening experience concerning that (laughs) conflict at work and uh yeah sometimes just so much gets lost in translation
0: and yes it's simple on the surface but it takes huge courage for each person to be willing to come into that and have those depths of conversations to be vulnerable to say what you really felt what your needs were that were not met to talk about hurts or wrongdoing
1: and to be open
0: and again sometimes I'll get called in and really what the manager wants is for me to confirm they're right and that the person's wrong and I'm like I'm not doing that work for you if you want to resolve this in an adult way where both people can be heard I'll come and work with you but don't tell me up front exactly what the problem is when you know at the moment we haven't actually assessed that
1: yeah I always say conflict resolution, you have to abandon this idea of we have a conversation against each other to stand our ground. You have to abandon that and look at the perspective and find a mutual space and mutual point you want to reach with a mutual intention of uh, well-doing yeah. and work towards.
0: Yeah. If both intentions are, I want to be shown to be right, it's not mutual and it's not it's not giving us the ground to walk on, so... Um, Yeah, I think while some of this looks simple, and the tools certainly help, there is always that complex human being at the middle of it that needs to be honoured and heard.
1: So let's go into two last questions that I wanted to ask uh, that are kind of related to each other. So what is soul? And (laughs) where do you place non-local communication?
0: Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. So for me, soul soul is a part of me that is above and beyond my physical body. I do then get into a little bit of a hole in terms of what's the difference between soul and spirit. For me, spirit connects generally at heart level, whereas soul for me is deeper than that. Soul is probably in solar plexus that brings together that heart and gut in some way that is not just gut and not just heart but something above and beyond that
1: for sure none of them are at the head level
0: (laughs) And, and none of them are at head level absolutely absolutely right um so that that's my current take on how i'm feeling into soul and learning to get to know my soul so i think undoubtedly there is a bigger connection that we don't understand that some of us feel more than others But for me, there's also a spiritual component that's bigger than me, that Mm. is my God, that is my faith structure, which is an incredibly important part of my life. So when I do embraining, I will ask the clients, do you have a spiritual framework that you operate within? Mm. Because if I can align the brains, but it's out of alignment with their spiritual framework, they're still left with a conflict. Now, a a small number of people will say, no, no, nothing, no spiritual. And I'm like going, I'm not talking religion. I'm talking spiritual. Is there an energy? Is there a universal entity? Is there a connection to others? The vast majority will describe to me their version of that. And I work with it in its truest form as I can, how they've described it to me, keeping my own faith and religion out of it but there's enough for me to go yeah there's something there is something bigger than us and there's something that connects us in a way that I certainly don't yet fully understand yeah
1: I've been uh, trying to to read a book about synchronicity by Jung (laughs) he doesn't quite understand it either but uh, (laughs) it's really it's really interesting Okay, Susan. Thank you so much. I will link information about tool in the bio below. Thank you so much for this uh, insightful conversation. I
0: absolutely.
1: Super I'm hoping this episode provided you with concrete tools to help you become a better interpreter of your mind, heart, and gut, so that the next time you stand before a conflicting decision, you will know what to act on. Thanks for listening, and join me again. In 10 days' time. Are you ready to crack the next subconscious
0: code? See you soon.